Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me once again this morning to the book of Esther. And uh, you certainly can follow along on the screen in front of you. We have just two more weeks in our study of this Old Testament book uh, before we move on to something else. I have uh, personally so enjoyed being again in this book I say again just simply because I know the story, I've, I've read it many times, but never have preached through it, never have taught through it, never have engaged it with the kind of depth that I have tried to engage us in it. So I hope that you as well have been encouraged uh, by this story and specifically uh, by the God who is never mentioned once in this book, but whose fingerprints are clearly over everything that we hear about and read about. And of course, that's one of the overarching themes of the book of Esther. This idea of divine providence. As our catechism states, that not one hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven. That God moves human history for his purposes, and for his people. Well, today as we turn to chapter eight of the book of Esther, uh, this goal of divine providence, all that Yahweh has been after, the decision of a, of a prideful king to have a, a beauty contest for young women, the beauty of Esther herself, the, the conversations that her cousin overheard in the, in the, in the, gate, in the uh, gates of the king, all of those things, it all pointed to this. Last week I mentioned that we were uh, in the arc of the story that we were uh, at the pinnacle the climax of, of the story. And, and in many ways today, we're, we're still there. We're not quite being released. There's still, there's still tension. There's still anticipation. And so this morning, we're going to resolve it as we continue on in the story. Uh, today's passage is, is a long one. No doubt it's a long one, but I wanted to take it as, as an entire chunk, and, and I'm not going to sift through all the fine details of what we find here in this passage, but I would like us to see clearly what I think the Lord teaches us and what God has for us here. And so listen as I read, this is Esther chapter 8. I'm going to start a little earlier than your bulletin says and end a little sooner than your bulletin says, just to make things interesting. Uh, No, just because that's what I want to do in terms of uh, thinking through it and talking through it. Uh, So I'm going to start with verse 1 of Esther chapter 8, and I'll end with verse 17 of um, chapter 9. Listen as I read and follow along. This is God's holy word. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman." 
Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to the king, to, excuse me, to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the providence from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th month of the 12th month, excuse me, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses They were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, On the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and the edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought to do their harm. 
And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and the fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased as those who hate did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Aradai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Amandatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request it shall be fulfilled and Esther said if it please the king let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows so the king commanded this to be done a decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa but laid no hands on the plunder Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and they got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks for bearing with me in that long scripture reading. I know that was a lot to hear, but I wanted you to hear it as one, as one sweeping story, as one sweeping conclusion uh, to all that we have been building towards. Now let's talk about it. We have some dear friends of ours that we've known and we've been close to for over 20 years, and we've shared a lot together with these Dear people, a lot of joys and our share of sorrows, but one of the phrases that we've said countless times to one another when we're experiencing something amazing is this, who would have thought, who would have thought that we'd ever move across the country together to go to seminary? Who would have ever thought that here we'd be sitting on a catamaran off the coast of Hawaii together? Who would have ever thought that our daughters would not only attend the same college but would live on the same hall? You see, who would ever thought is one of those expressions of wonder and gratitude at divine providence. I truly hope that you have said that phrase or, or something, something similar as a result of experiences that you've had in your lives. 
You see, it's the phrase that immediately came to my mind as I began to meditate on and and study this passage and the experience of God's people because it seems to me that there were a lot of people in this time, a lot of instances of people exclaiming, who would have ever thought? Esther, of all people, who would have ever thought? And what What happened on on the gallows that Haman built? Who would have ever thought? You see, friends, while last week was really a dark turn of events as we looked at divine justice and the wrath that came down upon the person of Haman, this man who who epitomized the, the enemy, being the enemy of God's people, Today we come to really what is a a beautiful turn of events, bringing light, bringing salvation. And so today as we kind of try to depress, uh, compress and and distill this this long passage, this long narrative that I just read, I, I wanna do it meditating on just one truth, but then we'll have four sub subpoints. And so for those of you who love to take notes, for those of you kids, uh, there's going to be one big truth and then four things you're going to have to listen for after that. And the one truth I want us to just set our hearts on for a few minutes is this. We serve the God of great reversals. We serve the God of great reversals. Reversals, And you could add, we stand amazed at, we adore, we worship, we are loved by the God of great reversals. However the Spirit of God causes your heart to respond to this story and to respond to the salvation of God's people here. This passage puts before us not just salvation of a people, but the dramatic, surprising, ironic ways in which God accomplishes it for his people. And so as we walk through the story, as we kind of pick apart and and retell it and, and think about what exactly is going on, I'd like us to see this God of great reversals in four segments. A reversal of standing, a reversal of destiny, a reversal of obedience, and a reversal of emotion. We'll go through those one by one. First, a reversal of standing. As we jump back into our story this morning, chapter eight, verse one, we, we pick up with the story of Haman kind of right in our rear view mirror, right? The enemy of God's people has just been put to death. Justice has been done. And with that justice of of Haman comes a change in status for Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Oh, Queen Esther is still the queen. That never changed, but, but no longer is her life in danger. Now she is the possessor of all that the one who tried to kill her owned. And in a sweet irony, she decides to give all of that which has been given to her to her cousin Mordecai. 
all the land, all the cattle, all the possessions, all the servants of the house of Haman are now Mordecai's. Mordecai, who should be dead on the gallows that Haman built to kill him, is also given the ring of the king, the ring of power, the ring of authority, the ring that Haman bragged about. We stop in our story and we say, who would have ever thought? Largely due to circumstances outside of their control. Certainly they played their part, but the standing of these two, pronounced and gifted by the king, is profoundly different than it was. Mordecai and Esther have experienced a reversal of standing. But they're not out of the woods yet. Their identity before the king is secure, but the people of God are not. Because the consequences of a madman, that madman being Haman, they are still in place. The king's edict, as he reiterates here in our passage, the king's edict in an ancient Persian context, sealed with the signet ring, could not be easily overturned. It could not be overturned at all. And so the day of annihilation remains on the books, on the calendar. And they had 11 months to try to figure out how to solve this problem. And so it begins with Esther once again risking her life to make another request of the king. She comes before the king and she receives the the scepter of welcome. And she says to the king, the the letters must be revoked. And notice the narrator in, in the passage makes explicit the source of those letters. It's the letters of Haman. Who? Haman the Agagite. For those of you who have been part of this story, you'll remember that when the narrator says Haman the Agagite, he is reminding us of this enduring conflict of the past that remains, of these two lineages that have been opposed to one another for generation, of unfinished business between the people of God and their enemies. And we're going to return to that in just a moment. So just, just store that for a second, Haman the Agagite. Esther comes before the king and her plea is emotional. I mean, she's invested like she wasn't the first time. She's still deferential. She's appealing to the advantages of the king. Whatever seems good to you, whatever you want to do. And her plea works. Her plea works. The king doesn't have an answer to the dilemma. He hasn't had an answer this whole book. He's just let other people decide for him. So he doesn't have an answer to what to do, but he says, Esther and Mordecai, you can do whatever you think you ought to do, however you're going to unravel this mess. Not that he got them in, but that Haman got them in. The favor of the king is theirs. The reversal of their standing is secure. Because they serve a God of great reversals. That's the the first little subpoint, and that leads us to the second reversal, a reversal of destiny. So Esther and Mordecai have this problem. How are they going to solve it? Eleven months from now, the Jews will be annihilated. What's it going to take? It's going to take 
a counter edict. One that is just as official, just as exhaustive, just as binding, and one that will essentially neutralize the effects of the first edict. Right? That's the point of of verses 9 through 14 of of chapter 8. Verse 9 is is technically the longest verse, though the verses are not inspired. We talked about that. Chapter verses heading are not inspired. They're not part of the original text. But verse 9 is technically the longest verse in the entire Bible in terms of words. And it begins a description of this decree and its dissemination that is exhaustive. And we we say, why? (laughs) Why such detail? It's almost as as if the the narrator is underlining the fact that, make no mistake, this decree has just as much weight as the original decree that Haman gave. In fact, it uses some of the same exact verbiage, some of the same exact language. And the substance of this new neutralizing edict is found in verse 11. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of the people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Basically, this is legalized, government-sanctioned civil war. That's the solution to the problem. But it's war that's aimed at the protection of a people. It's war that's not revenge by a people who are now in power, but this is an attempt at the establishment of justice in the kingdom. And will it work? Will it work? Well, that's the big question. The word gets out, and then we fast forward to the day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Now our Bibles, this language, the narrator of Esther, he is using the ancient Hebrew lunar calendar, which is foreign to our frame of thinking about time. And so we would say March 7th, 473 B.C., That is the day that the Jews ought never forget. The day comes and, well, you know the end of the story. I just read it to you. Verse one sums it up in three words. The reverse occurred. What was going to happen, what was supposed to happen through a web of divine providences, the destiny of God's people is reversed. The highest officials get involved. The governors, the satraps, the royal agents. You'd be be crazy to go against this group of people. And so another hashtag begins to trend. Hashtag, I'm with them. I'm with the Jews. And the Jews successfully defend themselves against their enemies. And what does our text say? 75,000 plus of the enemies of Israel lost their lives fighting against a God and a people that they could never defeat.
It's a defense that includes the killing of the sons of Haman. The naming of these young men adds another measure of justice to this day. It makes Haman's downfall complete, and and we think, well, this is kind of harsh. But it was quite common in warfare in that day because now the house of Haman will be unable to rise up and attempt to avenge their father's death. And it's over. God's people have been saved. Their destiny has been reversed. We serve a God of great reversals. So a reversal of identity, of status, a reversal of destiny, but there's something else that I want you to see that's embedded in this story. It's embedded in our text this morning. It brings out the third reversal, a reversal of obedience. Three times the narrator narrator here speaks to what the Jews didn't do in the midst of this bloody defense against their enemies and anyone who would attack them. Verse 10, they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 15, they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16, they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, face value, we can explain this by simply saying that God's people understood what they were doing, right? After all, this was a, this was a holy war, we would say. This was not a, a personal vendetta. This was not an attack of revenge. Personal gain wasn't the point. It was God's honor that was at stake. They were acting on God's behalf as agents of his righteous judgment against sinners, But what they didn't do also points back to that enduring conflict. You see, Saul, Mordecai's ancestor, was told in regards to Haman's ancestry, who Haman was descended from the Amalekites, Saul was told to not spare the sword against the Amalekites, to wipe them out. And yet, don't take their spoil. Don't take their goods. And what did Saul do? Well, you can read about it in 1 Samuel 15. He did exactly the opposite. He took all their stuff and he failed to wipe them out. And so in a sense, what the Jews are doing here in the book of Esther is they are making this wrong right. Even though it's within their legal right to pillage their enemies, They do what God had intended for his people to do. That doesn't mean that the Jews are perfect. Israel will stumble and fall again as a people. But here, here they show us not just a reversal of status, a reversal of destiny, but a reversal of obedience as well. And that leads us to a reversal of emotion. I just want to spend a moment here focusing on the hearts of God's people through all of this. 
The, the, the change in emotion began in God's people even before their salvation was fully accomplished, right? Mordecai goes from a man who is screaming in the streets, covered in sackcloth and ashes in chapter four, verse one, to one who in chapter eight, verse 15, is clothed in royal robes with a golden crown on his head, shouting and rejoicing. Just the hope, the certain hope of what was to come was enough for all of God's people, as chapter eight, verse 16 says, to have light and gladness and joy and honor. And of course, when their salvation is fully accomplished, when those days of conflict are over, feasting and gladness were in order. And their lives were forever changed and they would never forget. We're gonna talk about that next week. That's where we're headed as we conclude this book. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God of great reversals. But let me stop right there. As we think about applying this to our own hearts, let me say this, and I know I don't don't need to tell you this, It doesn't always happen like this. Right? All of our endings are not happy endings. Our stories often don't end like like the stories here. I mean, where was the God of, of great reversals in the first century church when Christians were being used as torches burned in the garden of Nero? Where was the God of great reversals in the 16th century when thousands in in France were killed? Where was the God of great reversals in World War II when the Jews were being slaughtered by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions? Where was the God of great reversals in Sudan just decades ago when Radical Muslims were killing and slaughtering and hunting down Christians to the tune of 500,000 dead. Where was this God then and there? Where's the God of great reversals in Andrew and Amy Allen's life? Andrew, that young pastor who died of a rare lung cancer just just a year ago. Brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't have an easy answer for you. And in a few minutes, we're, we're going to sing God moves in mysterious ways. But I know this, and I, and I, and I proclaim to you this, that God was not absent, that God has never been powerless, and that there are things that we can't see, things that we can't understand, but even in that, we cling to a God that we know. Sometimes we pray for a reversal like, like we see here in Esther, a happy ending. 
And God gives it to us and we praise him for it. Sometimes we pray for a reversal like we see in the book of Esther and we don't get it. But we can still praise God for it because of who he is, because of what he's done, because he's a God who has proven his love for us, proven that he is for us, and he has turned the tables for all who look to his son, Jesus. Because yes, the ultimate point of this rescue salvation story that we just read this morning here in Esther is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If Haman's plot had succeeded, there would be no Jesus. And if there was no Jesus, you and I would be stuck in our sin with the decree of death hanging over our heads, with that day of judgment looming ahead of us. But thanks be to God that he rescued his people here in order that he could rescue you and I. And so I proclaim to you that the gospel is the greatest reversal ever. Because that decree of death against us, the wages of sin, has been counteracted with another decree of a sinless life, a sufficient sacrifice, and a resurrection from the grave in the person of Jesus. And so we may not understand it all. There's mysterious ways that God moves. But whatever we have to face in our lives, we know that we serve a God of great reversals and that we've experienced the greatest of reversals. Let's just think about where we just walked. A reversal of identity. From sinners to saints, from orphans to children. In Jesus, the favor of the King of Kings is ours. 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. A reversal of destiny from darkness to life from death to life, 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that brings with it a reversal of obedience. We are no longer slave to sins, but we are free to obey and to walk in the life that he offers for us. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. And that creates new people, new worshipers. Those with light hearts, those with joy and and hope, even in the midst of struggle. Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Who would have ever thought, brothers and sisters? A gospel, a good news that reverses everything, that changes everything. We serve a God of great reversals.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this chapter in the story of Esther and for ah, the beauty of the truth that underlies it. For the amazing reality that you, you turn our circumstances. You turn our destinies. You turn our identities. And in Jesus, you give us light and life and love and hope. So, Father, may all listening here this morning be encouraged. Be ignited. Be empowered by this truth as we seek to walk with you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.